We are officially in part three. Part three of this study, the end of the age, the coming of the Messiah and the rest of God. And today, we're going to take a look at a very prominent eschatological belief, something I alluded to uh, last week that I had mentioned, and that is the rapture theory. Now, be honest, how many of you, how many of you at some point in your faith, at any point, or even right now, how many of you, be honest, raise your hand, subscribe to the rapture theory? Wow, almost every hand in this place was raised, including my own. I grew up, you know, as you know, many of you know, my parents, uh, they got saved out of the Jesus People Movement. Powerful, powerful movement. So many people came to faith. In fact, a lot of Jewish people came to faith out of that movement. Well, that time was a hot spot. There were specific trigger words. There were specific things being spoken of um, uh, that the church was clinging to at that time. Uh, that They were at the top. One of those things was being born again. Do you remember that? Do you remember being born again? That was, that was a hot term. You need to be born again. When people went out to the street evangelists, my dad would, did street evangelism, you would hear him say, you need to be born again. But there was another term that was very hot. And as a child, as a young child, I, I remember it. It was the rapture. The rapture. Everybody was talking. The pastors were talking about it. It consumed us. This is, this is what we did. Well, <clears throat> My parents uh, made the mistake, and my faith was real. I had real faith. I mean, I'm telling you, when I was a kid, I loved Jesus. I loved him. I knew he was king. I loved him. I wanted him Lord as my life. There was absolutely no question. The faith was very, very real to me as a child. So my parents take me to this movie. Well, needless to say, I come out of there, and I am terrified. I am terrified. By what I saw. The, the basis of the movie was that everybody wakes up one day and everybody's gone. And the radio report, the alarm clock's going off, the radio reports are gone. Yet it's been confirmed all over the world at the exact same time everybody just disappeared. And then the world goes to Hades in a handbasket. And everything just starts to fall apart. I'm a little child. I come out of this and I'm telling you, if your parents get out of your sight for more than 10 minutes, you're freaking out. The Lord took my parents. And I mean, I can remember there, there really were times I got up and my parents weren't in bed. I was like, I started singing the song. I've been left behind. I mean, you see, you did the songs going through my mind and I'm going, I was left. And I'm mortified as a child. I was just mortified. I couldn't find, oh, my parents were out in the backyard. I mean, it's just, it was, it was this, is, this is what set the stage for that. Is That was my understanding when I couldn't see my parents, is that I, I was left. Well, today, we're going to take a closer look at this theology. And we're going to put it under the biblical microscope. And I think what we're going to discover today might be somewhat of a uh, surprise to you, shall I say. There's something in regard to this particular ideology that I want to bring to light. And it is something that is vitally important to the whole concept of the rapture theory vitally important in fact it's its driving force it's the it's the fuel that fuels this thing and i think when i share this with you i'm i think that you're not going to look at this rapture theory the same way ever again pretty incredible so with that said i want to begin today on a positive note 
And what I mean by that on a positive note, I want to look at the positive things that the rapture theory holds. In other words, biblical truths. There are biblical truths to this theory that are real, they're biblical, and you should embrace them. These are things we want to embrace. And, you know, one thing we need to get in the habit of doing as believers, and I know you've heard me say this before, but what we need to get in the habit of doing is that we always want to establish some sort of foundation, a ground that is going to foster edification, a ground, a foundation that's going to foster learning, spiritual growth. And so what I'm saying is, is that when you know that someone differs with you theologically on a perspective on a Bible, on the Bible, when you come and sit down with them, it is a bad idea to sit down, slam your fist down and say, guess what I know? You're an idiot. You're wrong. You don't know what you're talking about. Let me tell you how right I am. How is that conversation going to go? It doesn't go well at all. First of all, you didn't approach in humility. You were never interested in learning yourself. You always know the heart of a person by the way they approach you. And when a person approaches another person, and that person knows we differ on something, a wise person goes and lays a foundation and says, let's talk about the things we agree upon. What do we agree upon? And banter back and forth. Strengthen the bond of relationship. Open the gates for understanding rather than closing the gates and getting into a defensive adversarial position. You will be destroyed. You will accomplish nothing with anyone nor will you ever learn anything yourself. So I'm going to take my own counsel, and today I want to begin by looking, I want to set a foundation with our beloved believers and and the people that subscribe to the rapture theory, and I want to talk about what we agree upon. What is right? What is good? And the first thing, the, the, the very first thing we can mention is, we all agree that the Lord's returning. He is coming back. Can we not agree on that? Let's lay that foundation. Every single one of us believes Yeshua is the Messiah and we're awaiting his return. Let's start there, amen? Not just that, but then we can look at the word rapture itself. You know where this derives from, where the actual term rapture derives from? It derives from the Latin, rapio. And what does rapio, what does rapture mean? It means to snatch away, to carry off. Let me send out a warning. You do not want to go out and tell people when they say, well, you know, I'm waiting for the rapture. And you say, you dummy, the rapture isn't even in Scripture. You can't find the word rapture in Scripture. Let me tell you, the word rapture, the concept of itself, of rapio, is absolutely found in Scripture. It is scriptural. So don't fall into that stumbling block. Don't fall into that pit where you tell someone it's, it's totally not scripture, you can't find the word rapture anywhere. Well, actually you can. And let me prove my point. Going to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren. I want to stop right here. Because you need to understand, this is a term. When Paul starts out, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren. You want to pay close attention. There's ignorance. There's mystery involved in what he's about to say. And let me take it a step further. When we find this type of statement of a first century Jew saying, I do not want you to be ignorant. Isn't it interesting they're dealing with eschatology? I see it with Paul, and I see it with Peter. It's consistent. They're dealing with eschatology, and that's exactly what we're going to see in this passage. I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. 
Now, I want to stop right there. Those who have fallen asleep. It is referring to the dead. This is a, this is a way, this is clearly, Paul is showing us that he is enlightened. And he's speaking on a spiritual level. It is common in scripture to identify the dead as sleeping. The perfect example is John 11. Yeshua goes out, he's talking to his disciples, Lazarus sleeps, but that I may go and wake him. Well, Lazarus was dead. And then and his disciples, they respond, well then, if he sleeps, he'll be fine. He'll get well. And then Yeshua had to come out and say, no, no, you don't understand, he's dead. And so, what you need to understand is this word sleep is used consistently, and this is Old Testament, New Testament. It's consistent. It's used in a reference of the state of the dead. They're merely sleeping. Now he goes on, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Yeshua died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Yeshua. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. Eschatology. See, already today we're starting to frame our eschatology to understand this. Moving on to verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Mashiach will rise first, those who are sleeping. So if it is the will of the Lord that you see his return, those who are sleeping, they're going to get resurrected first. They're going to rise first. Eschatology. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up. That is the Greek word harpazo. If I were to take it to the Latin, I could say rapio. It's a catching away. It's a snatching. It's right here you see rapio. There is a rapture in Scripture. We're looking at it. We're reading it. This is a rapture event. They're going to be caught up together. So here you have the living and those that were dead that were raised from the dead. They're going together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. So I ask you, is the rapture biblical? Absolutely. Is it found in Scripture? Yes. The rapture event is found in Scripture. So when we look at the whole rapture theory, we can absolutely say that there are things about it that we agree with, that are true, and we want to embrace these things. And if you ever enter into discussion, this is where you start. You start right here. You believe in it. Confess it. The bad news is this rapture theory unfortunately carries several other ideas and beliefs that are not so biblical. And it's these additional items uh, that bring this rapture theory into a, a total state of eschatological bankruptcy. I mean, that's, that's what's happening. And the more we dig into this theory, the rapture theory, and... Just let me set the stage here for a second. I'm going to be using two terms today, and you need to make a distinction. One term is the rapture event, what we see on the screen right here. That is the rapture event. The other term I'm going to use is the rapture theory. The rapture event is to be distinguished from the rapture theory. The rapture theory not only includes this, but it includes a comprehensive list of ideas that correspond to it, that spell out eschatology how it believes the end days are going to unfold. Okay, so, so make these two distinctions. Now, 
let me begin by saying one of the main problems with the rapture theory is the fact that this rapture theory, it attempts to force a specific timetable. Okay? And if, if, you, if you've ever talked to what you probably can consult yourself or what you believe, but uh, what you will find by and large, anyone that subscribes to the rapture theory, uh, one huge component to believing this eschatology, this eschatological belief, is the fact of when you are going to be taken up. It is before tribulation. It is before tribulation. This is one of the primary fundamental focuses and what is taught when people teach about the rapture. But they're forcing a timetable that is not biblical. And I'm going to tell you something. When you start messing around with eschatology and you start messing around in the Bible, here's what happens. You touch one thing and you change it. And it's a domino effect. Pretty soon you have to change everything. Everything starts to change. Well, let me share with you of why it's important to identify the fact that uh, uh, they're, they're forcing a timetable to go pre-trib rather than post-trib and what that really means. On the screen, I am showing you what that means. They are, when you force the timetable, you now, instead of having a second coming, there's no longer one event. Force the timetable to go pre-trib, and now you have to create two separate events. And this has a domino effect as you go throughout Scripture, because now what you do is you find um, pastors, they're going to particular uh, passages in Scripture, and they have to identify, well, is this the second coming, or is this the rapture event? And they start stumbling all over the place, and, and, and I've heard, and actually, you listen to the teachings in uh, listen to the radio programs talking about the raptures coming and this and that and how they view uh, particular passages in Scripture, and it's quite alarming. They do not view Yeshua's coming as one event. This is something you need to understand in regard to the rapture theory. And I'm going to tell you, Scripture only talks about one event. Nothing else. There's no third coming. There's no fourth coming. There's nothing like that. There is one main event. So what I want to do is I want to take you to some passages in Scripture. Again, pay close attention because with every passage we go through, we're constructing our eschatological belief system. I want to take you to John chapter 14, verse 2, and this is what we read. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. This is Yeshua speaking to his disciples. He's telling them, I'm going to go away. Can we ask the question, did he go away as he said? He did, right? He went away. But what's he say? I will come again. As surely as what he spoke when he said he would go away, I can believe he is going to come back. He's proven himself to be a prophet. He's proven himself to be a man of his word. And so here he says, I will come again. And what's the purpose and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. What a fascinating statement. Coming back, this is all eschatology, coming back so that he can receive us, that we can be joined to him and forever be with him as we just read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Forever. Going to Acts, going to the next book in the Bible, Acts chapter 1 verse 9. Now when he had spoken these things... 
Yeshua, he, remember, I'll just set the stage. Yeshua uh, died, he rose again, and he made some appearances before his disciples. And this is, this is after, this is post-resurrection. And when he had spoken to them these things, while they watched, he was taken up. And listen to this. A cloud received him out of their sight. This is what they saw with their own eyes. They watched the Mashiach ascend into the clouds. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Yeshua who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in a like manner as you saw him go into heaven. So here, I mean, the angels of God, they mention the fact that Yeshua is coming again. He will return, but they're very specific in what that return will look like. It'll be with the clouds of heaven. And there is no question what these angels had told the disciples. There's no question it would have resonated with them on a very deep level. And you know why? Because one of the most prominent, most prolific messianic prophecies found anywhere in Scripture deals with this very thing. They would have spoken those words and it would have rattled them. They would immediately be drawn to Daniel 7. Where it says, I was watching in night visions and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. One of the most predominant messianic prophecies ever commentaries, Jewish commentaries galore on this very passage because it's what the Jewish people are waiting for. They're waiting for a king. They're waiting for the Mashiach, Ben David, to come riding on the clouds of heaven with great pomp, with great glory. This is what they're waiting for. There's commentaries on top of commentaries and it's with the clouds of heaven. One thing that is extremely important to note, which further proves that the second coming and the rapture event are in fact one and the same, and that is this, the description that we see given here. Did you know that it's literally made to both the righteous and the wicked? It's made to both. It's not made to just the righteous. See, because the whole rapture event is what? Is that the concept is, there's a catching away. Uh, We're we're going up. But it's interesting that we see Yeshua, it's very clear that he's coming on the clouds of heaven to both the righteous and the wicked. Let me take you to Matthew 26, and I will prove this. Yeshua's on trial um, before, kind of, I guess, what I would call a mini Sanhedrin, if you will. The chief priest priests are there, the, the Kohen Gadol, the high priest. And we read, but Yeshua kept silent, and the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Mashiach, the Son of God. And Yeshua said to him, it is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, I want to point something obvious out that you probably already picked up. The men who he is talking to, are not righteous. There was more than just the Kohen Gadol there. And guess what? The men there that day professed he is a blasphemer. They confessed with their mouth. Now, let's just be honest. 
anyone who confesses that Yeshua is a blasphemer, they would not fall into the righteous category. We are dealing with those who rejected him. We are dealing with the wicked. And what Yeshua says to them is absolutely amazing. He's basically telling them, here's the deal. It is as you said, nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter, you will see the Son of Man. And so, in other words, you're going to go your way, you're going to die, and the next thing that you're going you're to wake up to is me coming on the clouds of heaven. This is what he's telling them. And, of course, that's when he got sent off to be crucified. They didn't care for that answer. And because, I mean, he immediately goes to the most, one of the most overt, prominent messianic passages and applies it to himself. I mean, this... That, that, you feel the weight of that. You feel the gravity of what was happening that day. Not just that. Let's, let's take this even further. What else do we know? If both the righteous and the wicked are going to witness the very same thing, meaning Yeshua coming on the clouds of heaven, right? What does that tell us? There's something else about the rapture uh, theory that you need to understand. What is proposed, what, uh, you know... The, the, the movie Thief in the Night, uh, all the books are about, is that the rapture is secretive. It's invisible. And everybody wakes up and wonders, what it, it, there's pandemonium, there's confusion, where did all the good people go? That is one of the, again, that's one of the prominent teachings for the rapture theory. But nowhere will you find that in Scripture. It's exactly the opposite. You know, when you have people purporting an eschatological belief system that is in direct opposite of what the Bible is saying, is that alarming? It is. It is very alarming. What does the Bible say? Revelation 1-7, Behold, He is coming with the clouds. Over and over, we're seeing He's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even they who pierced Him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of Him. Even so, Amen. There's nothing secretive about the event every eye is going to see him and interesting what john does even they who pierced him the wicked those who rejected him that's a parallel statement to what yeshua said in matthew 26 when he was on trial even they will see him it's not secretive let me take you to hebrews chapter 9 verse 27 getting into eschatology here and understanding it as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. That's exactly what Yeshua said in Matthew 26. Exactly. Know this, hereafter, you're going to see the Son of Man coming in the clouds. Well, they came and gone. They died. Okay, so understand. The lot in life is you die. Your expectation is the next thing you know, you're going to be waking up to judgment. And this is one of the terms that we talked about on the, when we kicked off this series. Yom Hadin, the day of judgment. It happens on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Teruah. It happens with the trumpet blast. This is when men rise up to judgment. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse... Oh, I didn't give it. I'm sorry, it's not up here, but I'll read it to you. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. I charge you, therefore, before God. Oh, there it is. Who did that? <laughs> Thank you, Lord. I need help today, obviously. This is beyond me. 
2 Timothy 4.1, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Yeshua HaMashiach, who will judge the living and the dead, when? When does judgment happen? At His appearing. The very thing that Hebrews talks about. This, see, this is what's consistent throughout the book. This is what happens. He is going to judge. It will be Yom Adin when he's appeared. Every eye seeing him. We start, we start to frame this eschatology. Let me, now, let me go back to Hebrews 9.27. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Mashiach was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time. Apart from sin for salvation. You will not see anything in here, not even an illusion, that there's a separate event involved, that there's a secretive event involved. He is coming a second time, and that is it. There's nothing more to talk about. It's his second coming. Now, in addition to this, let me even take it a step further. We continue to frame our eschatology and, and look at this biblical timetable uh, that God has given to us in, in regard to Yeshua's return. We know that Yeshua is going to return, but according to Scripture, this is not something that is going to happen until the end of the age. I mean, this is, this is the biblical testimony. Now, if we say Yeshua doesn't come till the end of the age, what do we know that has transpired? I mean, let's just follow this to the logical conclusion. Here you have the age of Esau, and if the Bible declares, well, he doesn't come till the end of that age... What does that tell you about everything else in this age? It's past. It's gone. Including what? Tribulation. The tribulation. Let me give you a couple scriptural references to support this. Moving to Matthew 24, verse 29. Immediately after. Not before. It would say before. It doesn't say before. It says after. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. You know, when you read Isaiah 13 and you go through this and you start reading Joel, you start going through these prophetic passages, one thing that you know in eschatology is that when you see the sun go dark and the moon go dark, yes, you're looking up. Why? Because that's the panim. That is the face of his coming. It's the very essence. This is telling us the gates of heaven are opening. That's the sign. The gates of heaven are opening. Is when this happens, the gates of heaven are going to be open. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. That's exactly what Revelation said. Every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And this is talking about his coming. All the tribes of the earth mourn, and they will see the Son of Man. Oh, isn't that interesting? Coming on the clouds of heaven. Yet once again, this is his coming. Coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Let's further build upon this. Let me take you to the 11th chapter of Revelation. And there in Revelation, I know you're familiar, there are seven trumpet blasts. Very significant because the number seven represents completion. Which brings our attention to the seventh. The seventh trumpet blast. We really want to focus on it because there's no more trumpet blast. There's nothing else after that. It's the last trumpet. Look at what it says in Revelation 11:15. Then the seventh angel sounded. 
And there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Mashiach, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshipped, rightfully so, verse 17, saying, we give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is, who was, and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. And the time of the dead that they should be judged. Consistent story. One passage after another. This is the time of the dead. It's not till after the seventh trumpet blows. And then there's a resurrection of the dead. The rapture. This is the rapture event when the dead are resurrected. And that you should reward your servants, the prophets, and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. Meaning when, when, you, when you look at that, when those who destroy the earth, uh, these environmentalists love to go to this passage and utilize this because you're throwing wrappers out your window. Apparently they don't realize it has everything to do with the homosexual agenda, with the abortion agenda, with the defilement defiling this earth with their sins it's reaching the precipice that is what this is talking about the sins of humanity against the living god of israel and his commandments so this has nothing to do about recycling so let's put this all into order for a second let's look at this let's get our eschatology with the blast of the last trumpet you have what you have the revelation of the Lord of hosts to the whole world. It prompts the resurrection of the dead. The graves are going to be ripped open. We have a time of judgment. And not only that, we have the righteous. This is the time where the righteous receive their reward. Are you starting to frame this up? Are you starting to understand how this is going to play out? Revelation 22, verse 12. And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. Yeshua is coming with the final trumpet blast. All things are going to be brought into account as we see here, as we see throughout Scripture, Ecclesiastes 12, 13. This, his coming, when Yeshua is revealed to the world, it signifies it is the end of the age. It is the hand of Jacob. It's the hand of Israel. Think about it. It's the hand of his of Israel on the, 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 the heel, which is the end, representing the end of Esau. That is that moment. In fact, one of the ways that Yeshua describes his coming, he references a term, the last day. The last day. That's how he, that's how he references the term of the resurrection, which we know doesn't happen until the last trumpet blast. Look at this in John 6. Verse 39, this is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. The repeal, the resurrection, the catching away of the righteous. When does it happen? The last day. If he said it happened a week before the last day, fine. Now we got something to talk about. Maybe, maybe he will come before the tribulation. There is no resurrection until the last day. The last day of what? The age of Esau. The last day of this age. And in case you missed it, he goes on to say, and this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. 
He goes on to say it a couple more times as you finish out the chapter so that you don't miss it. Allow the Bible to frame your eschatology. Just allow it to do, because it will. It will do the heavy lifting, amen? Let me further build upon this. Let's go to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15, verse 51. And, and I'm just giving you a fragment today. This is nothing. I'm just giving you a fragment of eschatology. People would be blown away if they knew how much it talks about the very end. Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. This is a mystery, yes. But who's, why is he teaching it? Because it's for believers. It's for us to know these things. We're not to be ignorant, brethren. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. He's referring to death. But we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, when? At the last trumpet. The very trumpet that we read about in Revelation uh, chapter 11. The seventh trumpet, the final trumpet, where the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our God. That's when this happens. It is at the last trumpet. The trumpet will sound, oh, and the dead will be raised incorruptible. And we shall be changed. That's when it happens. It's so much easier to allow the Bible to frame your eschatology because everything makes perfect sense. There's no confusion here. Let me take you to Isaiah 26 and show you that the prophets talked about this. You know, Paul's not just pulling this out of a hat. Isaiah 26, verse 19, Your dead shall live together with my dead body. They shall arise. And this is a reference to what Paul, if you read earlier on in 1 Corinthians 15, he talks about Yeshua being the first fruits because his body gets resurrected first. And because of his resurrection, what does the pastor say? We live. We're not dead in our faith. Isn't that interesting? Who knew Isaiah 26 was a messianic passage? Your dead shall live together with my dead body. They shall arise. Awake and sing. Awake from what? Your sleep. Because you're sleeping. This is talking about the resurrection of the dead. But there's a component here that I want you to notice. And sing. We are told we are going to rise up from our sleep and we are going to be singing. You who dwell in the dust, for your dew is like the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment until indignation is past. Rapture. This is talking about the rapture. This is talking about the last day with the revelation of Yeshua. The graves are going to be opened. But something interesting here, framing your eschatology to help you understand how all of this is going to play out. The prophet identifies something at the end of the passage where the Lord says, Come, my people, enter your chambers. Remember 1 Thessalonians 4, we're caught up in the Lord to meet the air. Why are we taken out of here to meet the Lord in the air we know because we are taken we're going to be taken into our chambers to be hidden from his wrath that's why so we're going to meet what you ask yourself we're going to meet the Lord in the air for a reason because we're going to be hidden Psalm 47 verse 4 now here's the thing show you the importance of the dynamo effect when I stand on truth and I continue to stand on truth, and you hit the dominoes, everything else starts to unfold. But once I start embracing fallacy, and I touch something, it affects everything else. 
creates a distorted picture and I get nothing. And I'm going to give you an example of this. When you, when you have your eyes opened and you allow Scripture to come together, we can read Psalms in a prophetic manner that we never would have before. He will choose our inheritance for us, the excellence of Yaakov, whom he loves. God has gone up with the Teruah. With the Teruah. The Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our King. Sing praises. We just learned in Isaiah 26, with the resurrection of the dead, when we are awake, we will be singing. And what will we be singing? The song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, Revelation 15. Because we have triumph over the enemy through Yeshua. That's what we're going to be singing. Remember when Israel came out of Egypt and the Lord brought them through the sea? What did they sing? The song of Moses. And this is what we're going to be singing. All of this comes together. Passages like this just jump off the page when you're framing your eschatology according to the Holy Spirit when you do that. So the long and the short of it is that um, we're going through the tribulation. Now, I know we don't like that, and, and, uh, but we need to go through the valley of the shadow of death. Yeshua went through the valley for us, and we've got to be willing to follow him. Amen? Through the valley of Bacha, the valley of weeping. Uh, this is clearly indicated throughout the, the word. Now, and I understand some people take the position, I've, I've talked to them about this, it's always a fascinating conversation, but some people like take the position, Daniel, who cares? What does it matter? Pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, all that matters is that we identify the Lord is coming back and we need to be ready. That's all that really matters. Fair enough. I can definitely agree with the whole concept that the Lord is coming back. Furthermore, I absolutely agree with the, with the, the fact that we need to be ready because we're not guaranteed tomorrow. I agree. Uh, but to take the position that it doesn't matter is a very, very foolish approach to Scripture. God has left us enough testimony to show us that it does matter. He spends so much time describing the end of the age and what is coming, articulating it. The apostles spent so much time articulating it. I'm sorry, it matters. When you really start to study this book, you start to realize, well, the whole book's about it. The whole book's about His coming. The whole book is about us receiving redemption, receiving an inheritance. That's the whole book. So you say, what does it matter? It matters everything. Unless we forget the words of Paul, what did he say? I, do not be ignorant, brethren. This is, this is pertaining to eschatology of how it unfolds. Understand, you know, when you start messing with God's eschatology, things can get very, very dangerous can have a catastrophic effect the way you approach the Bible. And let me show you what I'm talking about, give you a real live example. I want to take you to a book called The Foundations of Pentecostal Theology. Getting back to my roots. You Pentecostals out there know we, we sleep like this. this is, <laughs> the first trick I ever taught my dog was to praise the Lord. You sit up and she praised the Lord and then she'd get a treat. This is, this is a Pentecostal family. This is what we did. <laughs> well, I, I want to take you to this book. 
the book is very, very well written. Okay, um, there's some there's some scholarship involved in it. It does an amazing job at uh, promoting the rapture theory uh, and proposes support for a pre-tribulation eschatology. And one of the ways that it does this is by proposing arguments against post-trib ideology. I mean, that makes sense, right? If you're going to stand on the hill and say, listen, this is we're pre-trib, you're going to have to deal with the opposing argument. It's just, it's just the way it is, okay? And that's what this book does. See, good scholars, if you've ever read scholarship and uh, scholars' writings on, on various books of the Bible, they take one of the things that is considered to be responsible and it's good for us to learn from is they take all the arguments from everywhere. Because if you stand on truth, you should be able to deal with those, right? Well, this book takes a very scholarly approach to it. So I want to take you to this book and show you what these arguments have to say. And uh, let's just get to it. The following considerations argue against the post-tribulation rapture position. Now, before I click the next slide, the first argument that they give is the primary. It is the root of it all. It is the source. The, the, the other, there are other arguments that we won't get to today that follow. They're, they're nothing. I mean, they're, they're hardly even worth dealing with. Um, uh, I will, maybe I'll, I'll circle back and show you what some of those are. I don't have a problem with, with dealing with those. But what we're about to look at right now, you want to pay very, very close attention. And this is what we read. This is the argument. The tribulation period is not a church period, but is the final week of Daniel's vision regarding God's dealing with Israel. Seventy weeks. Now, now it's going to go on to quote Daniel 9. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness. Continuing on. It is a time of God's dealing with Israel and of his wrath upon the godless nations. The tribulation period is called by Jeremiah, Jacob's trouble. There are a lot of things that were said in this statement. But I can tell you this, what we just read is probably the most significant, most important thing to understand in regard to the rapture theory that you will ever take away. If you really want to understand the rapture theory, if you want to understand what gives it its fuel, its power, what's at its root, what makes this theory tick, is what we just read. It's what it is. And when you see it for what it is, only then can you appreciate how dangerous the rapture theory is. Let me take you back to the very first statement that they made. And I want to focus in on this, and I've highlighted it, underlined it. The tribulation period is not a church period, but is the final week of Daniel's vision regarding God's dealing with Israel. In other words, the tribulation is only for Israel and the rest of the world the church is separate. The church is separate from Israel. Well, isn't that good news for the church? They don't have to go through that. Israel, well, they didn't make the grade. You know, they're, they're, they're going to come back to the Lord. The, the Lord will probably give them another chance. And I mean, you should hear some of the rhetoric. And, uh, but for us, you know, Christian church, we don't got to worry about that. We are separate from Israel. This is dual covenant theology this is dual covenant theology all 
over again. This is the dirty little secret about the rapture theory. Don't ever forget it. This is what is feeling this. And it's just amazing, this whole concept. I don't know why I do it to myself, but I had the radio on, listening to a guy I knew I couldn't handle. But I'm drawn in. I get sucked in. I'll admit, and that's, that's probably, I don't know, maybe anybody else can probably relate to me on that, where you're listening to someone, you, 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 everything that's coming out of their mouth, you're, you just... You want to sit down and open the Bible and say, no, 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 please stop. But for some reason, there's something that brings you into it. You're just like, oh, it's there. It just brings you in. You can't turn the radio off. So here I am listening to this guy, very prominent pastor. Um, very prominent pastor. He hosted his own radio show, and he was interacting with his audience. And I was driving the car, and I'm listening to him talk about the rapture. It was fascinating to me. See, that's when the bulb went off for me and looking at this and starting to go, and I was blown away, and it was dual covenant that was driving this. He was explaining how the Christian church is separate from Israel, and he was jumping all over passage. Well, no, no, that doesn't apply to the Christian church. That applies to Israel. He's jumping back and forth. It was so convoluted, so confusing, so many missteps. He was actually in circles like a dog chasing its tail. And he was contradicting himself as it went on. And I was sucked in for a good 20 minutes on this thing. And one of the things that blew my mind that really set me off is he said, the church, and how he said it, people, the church inherits the kingdom of heaven. Israel will inherit the earth. This is what he, this is the way, this is the, this is the diabolical mindset behind the rapture theory. And that's what it does. And here you have the grafted-in branches doing what? Boasting over the natural branches. You see the deception? The vileness? What does it matter? It matters a lot. See, because theology will affect your eschatology. They're not mutually exclusive. And if you don't have your theology right, you don't have a chance in looking at biblical prophecy. Not a chance. It's just mind-blowing. Never mind all the passages that we read, like Ephesians 2. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one. He has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinance, so as to create in himself one new man from the two. Not two new men from the two, as though the church was to set up different camp from Israel. Okay, so let me get this straight. The church gets all the promises and all the good things, but nothing else that Israel has to go through, nothing else like Jacob's trouble. They don't have to go through all that. They just get the promises. It doesn't work. It's a total fantasy. It's fiction, and it's, it's, it's poor form. Himself, one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. I want you to understand something. I cover this in detail, and we're not going to get into this deep today. Listen to Discover Your Calling to Israel. The reality is, is this. There is only Israel, period. And you have an option. Confess the king of Israel, and he will bring you into their promises, into covenant that he made only with his people. That mercy and grace will be extended to you if you confess the king of the Jews. 
Yeshua of Nazareth. But there is nothing else. You understand? There is just his body, the church, or what you would call Israel. And we're, we're looking at Scripture with dual covenant glasses, and it is messing everything up. It's messing with theology. It is messing with eschatology. Isaiah 56, verse 8, which, by the way, the entire chapter is devoted to Gentiles coming in to Israel. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel says, Yet I will gather to him, to Israel, others besides those who are gathered to him. Does this sound like we're not being gathered to them? Does it sound like we're going to heaven and they're going to stay here on earth? You can't find a whisper of that. In fact, earlier on in Isaiah 56, the Lord warns them, Do not let the son of the foreigner say the Lord has utterly separated me from Israel. Don't do it. And yet all this eschatology that's coming out is going direct opposition against what God commanded us not to say. John 10, verse 16. Other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Talking about Gentiles. Them also I must bring and they will hear my voice and there will be one flock. Somebody needs to show me where there's going to be two flocks. There is one flock and there is one shepherd. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. It's what it is. So the long and the short of it, eschatology does matter. And you see how important it is today. And that this whole rapture theory isn't as harmless as it appears.